Welcome to The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson, and I am the Kate Gibson part. And I, by process of elimination, are the Charlie Gibson part. Our two-generation, two-gender podcast on the subject of books. And today, I think we have a book not only with a great title, but it's a great read. It's called How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. And one of the reasons that I do this podcast, because this happened long before we went on the air, every time my father picks up a book, and sometimes I don't even know where they come from, and he falls in love with it. And this happened with This Is Happiness, which you guys might remember from our second episode. He'll read a book and he'll say, oh, you got to read this. And I have to pick it up within 24 hours or I start getting nagged because (laughs) he wants to talk about it. And so he called me up and said, you have to read How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water by Angie Cruz. So I'll let him give you his first impressions and then I'll tell you why I think it's such an exciting book. Well, it's an interesting approach in this book. You get in the mind of the central protagonist. Cara Romero is the protagonist. She is a Dominican immigrant to the United States. She had been working for 20 years in a factory or plant, I forgot, but anyway, she'd lost her job and she thinks she wants another job. And a program in her community sends her to a job counselor and she has 12 sessions with the job counselor. Each session is a different chapter. And what you hear is her stream of consciousness as she talks to the job counselor. And it's not all about what job she may want or whatever. Her mind just travels along and you really get to know this character. You really feel like she's talking to you and you're in the seat of the job counselor. It's all through her perspective. And I was very fond of her. But one of the really interesting parts of Angie Cruz's discussion with us is she says she wants the reader to make up her mind about Carl Romero. Yeah, I think it's interesting because these job counseling sessions end up being almost stream of consciousness therapy sessions. And all you hear from the beginning is just, I mean, you don't even get the greeting to the job counselor. She just launches right into what's on her mind this week. And I love, you know, as dad says, I love the title. I want to say that there's a word in Spanish, and she talks a little bit about this, called desahogar, which is to undrown or purge yourself emotionally or to vent. I love the idea of undrowning yourself or allowing yourself to breathe by letting go, which is what Kata does in this book. And that's where the title comes from. And drowning in a glass of water is like the phrase we used to say when I was growing up, which is make a mountain out of a molehill. That if you get so lost in the spiral of your own self-pity, because frankly, often life isn't fair, that you will drown in your own glass of water. I love, I love that. And dad is right in the sense that it's hard to know what to make of Kata at times in the book. There's a lot of questions you can ask yourself about the reliability of the narrator. So the technique that she uses is both enchanting and frustrating because I want to know how honest Kata is being all the time. And it brings up the question of how self-aware are we really when we present ourselves to other people and how honest are we with ourselves about where we are? We have said on occasion that we are hoping that we will suggest books to our listeners that they might consider. They wouldn't obviously read them all, but, oh, that's an interesting book. Maybe I should think about that. This book, I think, would be terrific, and I'm interested in your opinion on this, Kate, would be terrific for book clubs because you will come to differing opinions about Kata and what she's about and what kind of a human being she is. Talking to this job counselor, she might as well be talking to a psychiatrist, but she obviously couldn't afford a psychiatrist, and she's been sent by this job 
hunting group to a job counselor. But it's just like she's being psychoanalyzed through these conversations that she has. It's very intriguing. And I think a book club, I would really love to listen to the different opinions that arise in a book club about this human being, what she's really about what she's really like and what they take away from these sessions with the job counselor. Again, it it brings up how we present ourselves, especially when we're presenting ourselves to somebody that may potentially offer us assistance. She's very conscious of how she's presenting herself and yet, and yet gets lost in her own stream of consciousness while she's talking. So I feel like you get a picture of the outside gata and the inside gata in these sessions. What I also think is interesting is she never describes Kata. There's no obligatory paragraph that says, you know, she was a plump woman and pleasant looking and, you know, worn, her face was worn by life. There's none of that. But I have a very distinct picture of what Kata looks like in my mind. So our conversation, Angie Cruz, the author, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, the book. As opposed to the movie or the album <laughs> or the song. <laughs> Angie Cruz, it's nice to have you in the bookcase, and we appreciate your taking the time to talk to us. This is a book that obviously the title intrigued us, but it is also a fascinating character study of one person, Cara Romero, talking to somebody who will help her, I guess, in her future life and trying to find a job. You come to have such a full sense of Cara by the end of the book, but tell me your description, your thumbnail description of this character who talks to us throughout the book. Well, Cara Romero has been laid off from working at a factory that she's been working at for 26 years. She's now 56 years old and has been taking unemployment benefits for a number of years and has signed up to the senior workforce program, which is an invented program where she will meet for 12 sessions, 12 weeks with a job counselor to help her find a job and re-enter the workforce program. And during these sessions, what she does is basically tell the story of her life. Is she a hardened character? Is she a softy inside? Give me some sense of her persona. I mean, I think that Karen Romero speaks very differently to different readers. I have found that for some people, they see her as infuriating and almost impossible to (laughs) comprehend. And yet they love her and they're very conflicted about their feelings because some of the things she says piss them off. And then some of the things she does makes her so lovable. So hardened, I think, depends on what side of the spectrum you are regarding Kara's choices, right? In some ways, Kara's ways of rearing her son, raising her son, for some people may not be correct, but for others, they feel like she had no choice. So I think that hardened, I don't know. I think it depends on the reader. I wanted to ask you because you don't, I mean, my dad said you'd sort of live in her mind, but you don't. You only know Kara from what she says. It's all about the way she presents herself and the way she expresses herself. I mean, do you feel like with Kara, what you see is what you get? No, she's a totally unreliable character. That's what makes her so fun. And I think that's the thing about stories. Like as we're telling our stories, even ourselves, right? You meet a person, you tell your story and it changes. You meet a person on another day, you tell your story, it's a different story. (laughs) Um, And I feel like in some ways, having this sustained conversation with a character like Gada for 200 pages is also a way to actually get to know a person in a more nuanced way, right? Like how many times do we actually sit with someone and just listen to them and work through 
all the different things that are going on with her life, right? Like she's dealing with her fear of losing her apartment. She's looking for a job. She has an estranged son. She likes to cook. She has regrets. She has dreams. Having this character that's basically unpacking so much of her life, I think allows, I don't know, the reader to actually, yeah, just see the nuances of who we are as human beings. And I think this is why so many people are relating to her. Like, I'm actually surprised, like how how <laughs> relatable she is for so many different <laughs> age groups too. Because I think that we do live. I don't know. I mean, in my experience, I feel like there's so many people that are so busy, and actually having a conversation where you're just listening and generously listening is rare. More and more rare. I think that's definitely true. This is, by the way, my new favorite word is desahogar. And I was wondering if you could give us a definition of it and tell us the role that it plays in the book, because I relate to this word beautifully. Desahogar. So desahogar is, in direct translation, would be to undrown from the inside, right? Like, And often, you know, in the ways that I was raised... I'm the daughter of Dominican parents. And I found that in my mother's living room and kitchen table, there was a lot of space for people to come and talk their story out until they couldn't talk it anymore or speak it anymore or whatever it was, grief, loss, or cry it out, right? And I use that word because the practice of her meeting in each of these sessions is yes. You know, she began a friendship with her neighbor, Lulu, because Lulu literally let her cry undrowned from the inside when she lost her son who left, but also through the practice of therapy was undrowning. Fascinated by the title of the book, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. And water, you just talked about crying is undrowning from the inside, which is a really interesting image, I think. Where did the title come from and what does it mean to you? So How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water is a play on a very popular expression that we use in Dominican Republic, but I've learned it's also used in many different places. Everywhere I was in Italy this summer, it seems to be they have this expression. I met this Greek woman, she uses that expression. And what it is, is no te ahogues un vaso de agua, like don't drown in a glass of water. And it's used when someone is lamenting or telling someone that they're struggling with something and the other person is like, you're drowning in a glass of water. You know, you're making a big deal about something that's not so big. But the idea with Kara is that the things that she's going through and the things that her neighbors are going through are actually really big things. I mean, they're facing housing insecurity, job insecurity, food insecurity, all these different things. And yet with each other, they're like, we're drowning in a glass of water. Like, how do we show our resilience in these moments that are incredibly challenging? It's interesting because some of the books that you write, some of them are very dark about the immigrant experience and the disappointment in the American dream. I hate to use the word light about this book because that implies there's little substance and no nuance, neither of which is true. It's a nuanced book with lots of different layers into it. So I use light lightly, but it is one of the, again, happier implies, no, this is less substance, but it's a bubblier book about these kinds of experiences. Was that a deliberate departure for you? No, I mean, I think all my books have been a little funny. I think in this particular book, I don't know, I really leaned into the laughter. And I think it's because I needed the laughter. You know, I started writing this book in 2017 when Trump was first president. And I was feeling a lot of despair all around for what was going on with immigrants in the border. There was a lot of press on kids in cages. 
there was a lot of calls for immigration lawyers to go to the border to the airport because of the Muslim ban and like to help people to get out of these stifling situations that Trump was putting in so many immigrants in the United States. And I didn't really like I was feeling like it just felt darker and darker. And I think that that darkness when Cara Romero came to me in 2017 and basically started speaking to me with the first sentence, like the first sentence was literally the first thing I wrote down for this book, which is my name is Cara Romero. I came to this country because my husband wanted to kill me. I just went with her and she was just like, it's, it's wild how something in me wanted to survive this very dark moment in the United States. And the laughter, it's like we have an expression in Spanish, we laugh not to cry, you know, I think really came through in the book. You mentioned when Cara first came to me mm-hmm. in 2017. Describe that experience and what that meant. <laughs> I mean, you know, writers are so kooky, but I think that during that time in 2017, I actually was thinking that I might change careers. I had been writing a novel called Dominicana for over 10 years, and I couldn't find an editor that wanted to publish it. And it was sent out to like every publisher. I felt like every tiny, small, big, every publisher in the world. And everyone kept saying, there's no market. It's too sad. It's too bleak. There's no, you know, and I was thinking, wow, there really is no market for this book. Like no one wants to publish it. It wasn't edgy enough or it wasn't innovative enough. There were so many comments in these letters. And I thought the world really needs everyone who cares about making change to be active. And I thought maybe I'll become an immigration lawyer. Maybe I'll become a doctor or like what? I'm young enough. I could still change careers. And in that moment, I was on the subway on 168th Street in New York City. And I saw this woman in her late fifties reading a book that looked like a handbook to me for something, you know, learning something new. And I thought about all the women that I knew in Washington Heights in the great recession who lost their jobs my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they all lost their jobs that they had been working over 20 years and they never re-entered the workforce. And I started thinking, what does it look like to re-enter the workforce after being in the same job for 20, 25 years, not speaking the language, not being so savvy with the digital? And that's when she came that day. I said, tell me something about yourself. I was kind of speaking to that woman that I never spoke to on the train, but also like all these women that I've met that have had this experience and Cara Romero was like, you want to know something about myself? I'll tell you something about myself. My name is Cara Romero. I came to this country and I was riveted. I was riveted by her. Listen, I want to know more. And I literally pulled out my phone. I was on the subway. I pulled out my phone and I started typing really quickly the first 750 words. Wow. Once you started working with Cara and getting to know her, did she surprise you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like I was growing and learning with her because the truth Mm. is that someone like Gara is not someone that I would become friends with. And it probably wouldn't sit and listen to them talk for so long. Like I probably would enter a conversation with someone like Gara and project my own ideas about what I think she should be doing or how she should be living or what kind of person she is, even before she gets to tell her story. And I think that's a very common practice where people really struggle with listening in a generous way. And I feel like the process of writing Cara was a lot about me learning how to ask more questions and really listen with curiosity and wonder versus projecting what I think people should do or how to fix their problems. (laughs) So, so, So the counselor she's talking to 
mm-hmm. is asking questions that you as a reader don't necessarily hear because all you're hearing is her sort of stream of consciousness talking to that counselor. But were you in your mind as you wrote asking questions of Kara? Yes, of course. A lot of the draft was me asking her questions, right? Initially, the first questions mm-hmm. I would ask were job interview questions. What are your weaknesses? What are your strengths? You know, what are your dreams? And those were the first draft. And then as I was working through it, I was like, did you feel anything when your son left? What happened to your sister? And I kept asking questions to the text. But the part of asking questions for me was looking at a person like Gada, who I was really struggling with her mothering style. I have a son myself. And and thinking, how can I love you more? How can I have more compassion for you? How can I make you more true? But she has a wonderful way of not answering the questions. Yes, she goes off on these <laughs> tangents uh, where where you you imply in your own mind what the question was, but she's not going to answer it. She's got, she wants to tell you about something here or there, which makes her rather endearing. So there you are, the author answering the question, and there she is, your character, not answering them. Yeah, well, you know, I think that It's true that when you're talking to someone who's not really used to speaking about things that have been really difficult in their lives, they're always going to be changing the subject. But I do think that a really good listener is able to say back what they hear and sometimes help make connections to the many things we say. And I think like in some ways, this absent interviewer who's just listening, right? It's the reader, it's that person, right? Now the reader fills that seat of the interviewer They're also, I think, what it would look like when we were in a space with another person and we help the person telling their story as a good listener. How do we support people in the everyday? How do we help them feel more human? How can we be more kind and generous? No, it's interesting that you say that because I, too, found myself wanting to oppose my will and my thoughts on Kara's stream of consciousness. Like, if she didn't make an interview or whatever, like, how come you didn't make that? So, I mean, like, in some ways, it made me question myself as a reader and the way that I was trusting her. And was I bringing any bias Uh to that trust? And was that cutting off my listening in any way? (laughs) But one of the things that's interesting that Katie raises there is... I'm always thinking, is she being honest with me? Is she being honest with that job counselor that she's Mm -hmm. talking to? And the same thing, is she being honest with me, the reader? Is she? Well, this is why I have documents woven through the book. So for me, the documents work a little bit like a counter narrative, but also like a way to show different sides of Kara that might not necessarily show up in her telling her story to the interviewer. And I think that, looking through some of these forms, whatever they are, they add kind of a depth and tension between what she says and what we realize is happening. So there was an original draft that actually had the questions in it? Yes. The first, first draft had all the interview questions and it was like 40 questions and cut. I mean, it was a bigger book. And then I realized a draft is not a novel. Someone telling all their life story is not a novel. I had to really think about what can hold inside of a novel? What can be held of Kata's story inside of a novel? So the reader stays with her for the entire time. Let me finish with just one last question about Kata. It breaks up very nicely in chapters. She has 12 sessions with this job counselor. You have 12 chapters of each of her sessions and what she's saying in each of them. At the end, Angie, is she any more self-aware than she was at the beginning? I mean... 
I think so, but I think that's up to the reader, right? Like, I think that I, I find that when people are given the opportunity to tell their story, something changes. Something always changes. And it might be a minor change or it's something, but something changes. And I feel like something did change with her at the end. That was quite powerful. Nice to talk to you. All the best. This is a lovely book. And I think Kara is a lovely character. I really enjoyed getting to know her. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Angie Cruz, for talking to us. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Angie Cruz, rapid-fire questions. Lesser-known book you recommend to folks? Widow Basquiat by Jennifer Clement. Why? It's a book about literally <laughs> Bust's um, widow, one of the last persons that he was connected with. It's told in a beautiful, experimental language that is called a memoir, but it actually is the story of this other woman, and it's really beautifully written. Is there an author that you will read no matter what he or she writes? James Baldwin. I've read everything he's written. I mm. wish he could keep writing. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of does because there's so many people inherited, you know, that voice. Mm -hmm. Well, and I find his work changes as I get older. The most influential book in your life? I would say in my writing trajectory, the book that opened me up to become a writer would be Incidents of a Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs. Revered book that you're perhaps sorry you read. I'm never sorry to read a book. <laughs> <laughs> I always think every book, I learn something from it. So even if I'm critical of it, what I do is that I turn it around and I think, okay, why am I? And what can I learn from this experience? You didn't close a book ever and think overrated, overrated. <laughs> I think it's very hard to write a book. I think no matter what, even if it's a book that might have not met my expectations as a reader, I do think that it's a journey to write. Even like just to write down the words is work. <laughs> So I honor that. Do you finish a book you know you're not liking or do you put it down? I put it down. Life is getting shorter as I age. I used to feel bad and I would push through because I thought, oh, maybe it'll get better. And now I realize I don't have the time. Do you read your reviews? Yes. I've been very lucky because everyone loves this book. If I wasn't a writer, I would be... A doctor. 
How come? Um, I don't know. I've always wanted to do something useful. And I feel like, you know, if I had a, if I was a doctor in a family, you know, I could actually help my family in a way that, you know, I can't really do anything for them as a writer. <laughs> Elizabeth Strout gave us the same answer, which was interesting. She said, I'd be a doctor, but she said I could never pass organic chemistry. This is also true. <laughs> this is true for me, too. So, Kate, what did you take away from the conversation? Well, I love that Kata is written from an ESL point of view. It's clear that Kata's first language isn't English. And I think that adds more layers to what she's saying because she really has to think it through. And it's interesting, again, that stream of consciousness comes out of that ESL, that eventually she sort of lets go of the agonizing of what to say and just goes with it. I love that Kata, as a character came to her on the subway in the guise of hmm. an older lady mm -hmm. looking yeah. at job materials and right. for job hunting. I think it's an amazing lens through which to look at the immigrant experience. And then also, I love that she loves revising. I love that that's her favorite part and that she looks at that as a way of freeing her content and that she talked to us about the fact that there was an earlier draft with the questions in it and that she took them out because... You know, I like that she asked the question, when do we ever listen to somebody in that way? When do we ever just let them go and we aren't thinking about what we want to ask next or what we want to say next? We're just listening. And that's what you do in this book, Tukata. So I love this interview on several levels. What about you? Well, it's interesting when an author says, you know, when you have one character that is so central to the book, she's the entire book. And the author says, but I don't know what I think about Kata. I want the reader to decide. I want the reader to make up his or her mind as to whether this is a really good person, warm-hearted person, or whether she's a little bit of a scatterbrain. I don't know. It's up to the reader. And which is why I think book clubs would be so interested in this book, because I think people would come to different decisions. You will get something of the immigrant experience uh, when you read this book as to how Kata looks at it. But this country is really trying to decide what we are as a receiver of immigrants from all around the world. It's a hot political issue, and we just didn't get into it. The other thing I would mention, Kate, you just very quickly talked about ESL. Carter is somebody who came here speaking only Spanish and now speaks English. But you don't have to speak Spanish to understand this book and to get a sense of Carter. No, absolutely not. And I think what you say about the way that Angie Cruz writes about the immigrant experiences is an important note to make. Her other book, Soledad Dominicana, which was chosen by the GMA Book Club, and Let It Rain Coffee. They're all about finding your identity and the immigrant experience. She writes about it beautifully. But it's incidental in this book. This book is just Kata. And I will love to hear people's reactions to it because I have, a, as you say, there's no description of her, but I could draw a picture of her. And I suspect you could too. And I suspect our pictures would be very, very different. We're going to do something a little bit different today, which is rather than talking to an independent bookstore, this is our, what, 25th, 26th uh, a podcast. 985th. And, <laughs> well, <laughs> sometimes it feels like that because uh, a lot of work goes into each one of them. And a lot of books that get read don't make it because one or the other of us doesn't think that it would make a very good podcast. But in a few minutes, I want to talk about books that we have read that we thought, mm, I really like that book, but maybe it wouldn't be perfect for the podcast. And so we'll get into that in a minute. The other thing I want to do is say that after a half a year of doing this, we want some reaction from people. We need to uh, hear from you. 
what you think is working and what you think is not. Yeah, absolutely. And so we encourage you, please, to let us know in your reviews on all the various platforms on which you listen to podcasts, how you think we're doing, what you're liking, what you're not liking, what you want to see more of, what you want to hear less of. And we respond to those and we read them and they're actually really useful data for us. So please, if you have something constructive you want to say to us, please feel free to get on those platforms and helps us figure out what direction we want to go into. A number of people have sent in suggestions of independent bookstores that they think we ought to be talking to bookstores in their communities, and we'll get to them. We'll get to some of them. Uh, And what else do you want to hear, Kate? You know, we like suggestions of authors. We definitely look into those as well. Um, If if you want to, you know, if you want to tell us, Jesus, stop with the rapid-fire questions. Well, I can't guarantee we'll listen to you. I happen to like the rapid-fire questions. But we will listen to them all. (laughs) And as I say, we do take them into consideration because there's nobody more important to our show than you, the listener. Yep, yep. Now, Katie, you suggested if we were going to have a conversation about how we're doing after half a year of this, that we ought to uh, make a list of three books that we have read during the year that didn't make it to the podcast or haven't yet, because I have one that I think I'd still like to do, but for various reasons we haven't done, but you still like the books. You start. And typical me, I made the rules and then I broke them all. (laughs) I have a few and I broke them into categories. So the first category I'm going to go with has a few books in it, which is just, I'm going to call it Are You Listening Author? It's Me, The Bookcase. So these are authors that I'm trying to get on the show because I love them and I haven't been able to locate them yet. One of the books I read uh, last year that I I loved so much was The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin. It's a terrific sci-fi story that takes place in New York City. If you've ever loved the city or lived in the city, you will love this book. The heroes of this book are the five boroughs made into people. These people, these boroughs are going to have to work together to defeat the monster in New York City. And I can't wait for the next one, which is coming out this fall. And Anthony Horowitz, who I'm a huge fan of and has not one, but two mystery series going right now that I just love. So that's my category there is, is are you listening author? It's me, the bookcase, Anthony Horowitz, N.K. Jemison. Get my email. I want to talk to you. Your first one. I would start with The Lost Kings, which is a book I've just finished within the last couple of weeks written by an author named Terrell Johnson. It's a story of twins who depend on each other because they have a single father who is an alcoholic and is somewhat abusive. And I don't know whether it's a novel or a mystery or a thriller, but it's quite good. And it has an extraordinary twist at the end. I always love mysteries that come to you with a twist. It's certainly a good read. And I recommend it to you, Kate. Oh, okay. And I love a good mystery read and I, I adore a twist ending. Lucy Foley, who's sort of famous for her twists, the guest list was something I loved last year. All right, so my next category is best horror. Now, a lot of you guys know that I love horror and I'm working to get my dad to love horror. So at some point we will get there, but I'm going to give you my favorites in this category from the last year. One is A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul G. Tremblay. It's about a daughter who either has schizophrenia or is possessed. The book lets you decide. And it scared me to death. Very few books <laughs> actually scare me. You know, I always sort of take glee and horror. Like sometimes I'm giggling and stuff like that. But this one really scared me and I had trouble reading it at night. And the quote on the front, the blurb on the front, because now I read things just because Stephen King just blurbs on it, let alone did he write it. But he blurbed on the front, this book scared the living hell out of me and I'm pretty hard to scare. 
And so, of course, I grabbed it right off the shelf <laughs> and read it from cover to cover and loved it. And I can't wait to read more Paul Tremblay because he was a revelation for me. And then Full Throttle by Joe Hill, which is a bunch of short stories. And a lot of the stories are really scary. There's one that's really gross, but there are some that are really beautiful. There is a girl who spends the last of her pocket money on making an AI friend for the day. And it's a beautiful story. And I couldn't put the short stories down. So Joe Hill, well done. The book that taught me the most, and I want to have her on the show at some point, I went into a bookstore because I wanted to buy Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And when I went to go check out, the bookseller said to me, I won't let you walk out of here if you're buying Cast without The Warmth of Other Suns. Mm. And so I bought The Warmth of Other Suns and I read it first. Now, a lot of talk has been, and rightly so, there's been a lot of talk about Cast as a brilliant book on race in this country. The Warmth of Other Suns is the story of the Great Migration. And when I knew, I mean, the Great Migration was taught to me thusly. The Civil War ended and the South was kind of a nightmare. So most Blacks migrated North. It is so much more of a complicated story than that. The migration took many, many, many years. It was unbelievably dangerous. Blacks were made into sharecroppers, and so the people who they were sharecropping for would make up debts so they weren't allowed to leave, and then they were allowed, you know, and then they could be chased by the law. It was an incredibly dangerous undertaking. The book follows the story of three different people. One migrates to California, one migrates to the Midwest, to Chicago, and one migrates to Harlem. And it really gives an amazing 365-degree view of the Great Migration, and it taught me so much I didn't know, and I should have known it. Isabel Wilkerson, as you say, the author both of Cast and of that book. I had read that book long before Cast came out, but they are both wonderful books. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. My last book has been out for a while, about a year. It's a biography. And I want to do more biographies, frankly, in the podcast as we go along. A, a professor at Princeton, Alan Guelzo, his name is G-U-E-L-Z-O, wrote a book on Robert E. Lee, Robert E. Lee, A Life. And it raises a really interesting question, which is, how do you write a biography of a traitor? He was a traitor to this country. He wanted to destroy the Union. But he was, by all accounts, a great general. His views on race are, are not so easily categorized. They are nuanced. He is also, you would be hard to believe, somebody who was very concerned about money, about his own fortune. He's a very nuanced character. But Guelzo raises the point that he was a traitor. And you have to like the person that you're writing a biography of, not to end a sentence with a preposition, but how do you feel about that character? And do you want to make him sympathetic in order to get readers? Is it hard to make Robert E. Lee sympathetic? Yes, it is, because he did want to destroy the Union. But it's, as I say, a very good biography. Robert E. Lee, A Life by Alan Guelzo. The last book I want to mention is one we would never, ever, ever do for the podcast, but it was by far the most meaningful book I think that I read in the last year. I don't know if any of you guys have seen these online, but there's a program whereby you can get a writing prompt every day and you write a little bit about your life. And then in the end, these prompts get bounded into a book and you can give them to somebody. And my mother did that this year and she gave me one for Christmas and so it is informally titled A Collection of Memories by Arlene Joy Gibson, and that is my mother. And that book meant so much to me. It allowed me to get to know my mother in ways that I really didn't before. I don't think of her as a girl. I don't think of her as a girl who loved her summers on the shore where she worked on the boardwalk. I 
didn't even know how big a role her grandparents had played in her life. It gave me all sorts of, I don't know, glimpses into her upbringing and her thought process and what was important to her and how she became the woman that she became. And I read it in a night and I loved it. And I'm so thankful to my mom for doing it. And if it's a gift that you can give your kids, I highly recommend it because it's something that I'll treasure and I'll give to my kids so that they can know all the subtleties of of their grandmother, who I don't generally think of as a subtle woman. So it's really nice. <laughs> it's, it's nice to get a picture of how she was, was formed because um, my mother has always been so capable that it's easy, I think. She's so capable and smart. It's, it's easy to think of her coming out fully formed. <laughs> but that book meant so much. It was an interesting project. She wrote a little something every, every week, and, I, and it, it came to mind when we talked to Anna Quinlan who talked about the fact that you need to write, you need to put things down on paper for future generations. So anyway, those are the books that we're sort of interested in, have been interested in over the last year, and uh, books that didn't make the podcast, but maybe someday will. Anyway, Kate, thanks for going through all that. Again, we, we do solicit your comments. We do solicit your reactions. Put them down in the review area, wherever, as we say, free podcasts are sold. And as we leave... This week, as always, a few final words from our author that we talked to, Angie Cruz. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shertavian. I'll give you a James Baldwin quote that I love to say. It's very expensive to be poor. in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.